when I did that and I began to hear the voice of that inner critic and began to understand that it needed me to love it and to be kind with it, it changed everything. It changed my relationship with that inner critic and I began to love a part of me that I thought was very unlovable. Welcome to Permission to Love, a podcast where we have conversations about how we can transform our relationship with ourselves. I'm your host, Jerry Henderson. I'm so glad you're here, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Today, I want to address the inner critic. What is the inner critic? How do we begin to heal it? How does it show up in our life and really begin to get victory over it in our life? You know, the inner critic is one of the main manifestations of shame. It's one of the main things that shows up in our life when we feel shame. So what do I mean when I say inner critic? I want us to get some common understanding and language around that. What's well, that voice inside of our head, the voice that beats you up, the voice that reminds you of why you're not worthy. It's the one that brings to mind all of your failures. It's the one that projects into the future and tells you all of the ways that you're, you're going to be unsuccessful and all the things to be afraid of. It's a really toxic thinking pattern. And it can bring a lot of damage into our lives. And a lot of us aren't even aware that we have it or even how to label it or how to deal with it. You know, some of the effects of the inner critic, we get really low self-esteem, become very indecisive because we're not trusting ourselves, beating ourselves up. We think, well, you made this decision, that was wrong, and you always make wrong decisions, and second-guessing ourselves to no end there becomes this underlying sense of not being worthy. We're just so used to beating ourselves up that we just stop believing in ourselves. We think that we're a piece of crap. I mean, I won't even get into some of the language that I use towards myself for years, decades, actually. And the havoc that that will wreak on your nervous system to constantly have that voice going on inside of your head. I mean, I am well acquainted with that voice. It was my bedfellow. It was with me everywhere since I can remember. I mean, I had it as a little tyke. I remember in school feeling like the dumbest kid. I remember being in meetings where I would just constantly be beating myself up about everything I said in that meeting and for hours afterwards. No matter how well I performed at something, it was never good enough. And I'm sure a lot of you who are listening to this can relate to that. And it can begin to feel hopeless. It can feel like it's never going to end. But I want to I give you hope. It can end. And I personally know it can end. And I'll talk about that here in a little bit. One of the big impacts of the inner critic is also that we get a lot of anxiety and depression And we don't associate, we're often not aware of the fact that that anxiety and that depression is directly linked between what's going on between those ears of yours. And so as you're keeping yourself redlined, you're keeping yourself in fight or flight because your body doesn't know the difference. All the science is telling us that your brain is not going to know the difference between if an event is actually happening in this moment or if it's something that happened in the past or in the future, as soon as you start to think about it, I mean, you're well aware of this. As soon as you start to think a thought, your total chemistry begins to change. You can think about that presentation that you've got to do, or you can think about that mistake that you made. And it's almost like you're in the exact moment again, 
all the chemicals in your body are beginning to activate, and you're reliving it, or you're living the future in this moment. All of that is keeping you redlined. And that redlining is then getting you depressed because your body's becoming fatigued. It's constantly pumping out adrenaline because it doesn't feel safe. And then you're crashing. I'm sure you're feeling familiar with this as I'm saying all of this because, uh, you know, if you've got that inner critic, you know what I'm talking about with all of these things. You begin to get into imposter syndrome. You live in imposter syndrome. You know, when people talk about imposter syndrome as something that occasionally comes up, it's like, no, that's, that's where I live is in imposter syndrome world. Uh, and so you can just imagine what this is doing to you physically. I mean, I shared in the last episode about my heart attack and open heart surgery. I will contribute a lot of that inner critic activity to that. The, the stress, the toll. I lived with a pit in my gut 24-7. It was constantly there. And it's a lot of why I drank as well, to shut this thing up in my head. I think it's really important that we begin to address it because we have to heal that voice if we're going to transform our relationship with ourselves, It's kind of non-negotiable, guys. This thing, it's got to be dealt with. The good news is, as I said, it can, and we're going to do it in a way that might surprise you. So here's some thoughts I want you to think about as we get into this podcast. Number one, with the inner critic, we've got to de-identify with it. We've got to see it separate from ourselves. We also have to disempower it. And de-identifying it will lead us on the path of disempowering it, but disempowering it's just a, just a little bit different. Then we, we're going to figure out how to disrupt it. And I'll share some tactics with you on how you can disrupt that inner critic. And then we got to deprogram it. So the four Ds, going to de-identify with it. We're going to disempower it. We're going to disrupt it. And we're going to deprogram it. So how do we begin to de-identify with it? Well, on my journey of learning how to heal myself, in the last podcast I talked about when I realized I was the source of my own suffering, I also realized that I could be the source of my own healing. Now, when I say the source of my own suffering, I do not mean that I caused the trauma in my life, and I'm not owning the behavior of other people. I talk a lot about pain is something that happens in a moment, but suffering is what we carry with us. Suffering is the meaning that we give to the pain. We begin to build a story around the pain. Why did the pain happen? Why did this happen to me? What if things would have been different? And then that story begins to produce massive suffering in our life. And then it actually begins to shift into this inner critic of what's wrong with you that this would happen to you. What did you do? How could, were you, are you not lovable because the people that love you uh, weren't loving towards you? So what does that say about you? And a lot of this, as we talked about before, is at a subconscious level. As I begin to, to understand that a lot of that suffering was that story that I was creating in my head, and if I had that much power to create that story, then I have the same power to create a new story. And that new story, being hopeful, being loving, and being kind. And so I went on that journey. I'm like, I'm going to heal my life. I don't care what it takes. I'm going to learn how to do it. And one of the key things that happened for me is I just started reading everything. I was talking to anybody that would you know, allow me to interview them, have questions with them. I was reading this one book. I was actually listening to this book on uh, audio. And I was you know, I've been a nomad for the last two years. It was part of my healing journey to sell my house, detach from 
all of the story that was there, intentionally put myself in discomfort to begin to figure out how to grow and understand what was happening inside of me and then begin to address it. And so one of the, one of the days I was on this long drive, like a full day drive, five, 700 miles, however long, and I'd heard about a book. And it was the book by Michael Singer, The Untethered Soul. Fantastic book. I so encourage you to get that book. I'll remind you about it again at the end of this podcast. But one of the key things that he says in that book is that you are not your thoughts. And it's early on in the book. And when he said that, I was like, what are you talking about? I mean, how am I not my thoughts? I'm obviously my thoughts. I'm this part of me, like that's the real me, the part that thinks, associated with the part of me that thinks, and then I'm believing what that brain of mine says. So when that brain says you're a piece of crap and you're not worthy, then I believe that and I begin to adopt that. But that was the first time in my life that I'd heard somebody say that, that you are not your thoughts. And I I like to think about it this way. You know, my brain, its function is to think. It is an organ and it thinks, and its job is to keep me safe. And then that becomes curious about how does the inner critic keep me safe? We'll talk about that later. But the reality is thinking that, well, if my brain is an organ and its function is to think, then I begin to associate it with, well, you know what? I have a heart and it beats, but I don't say, I am my, my heart or my liver. It's designed to clean my system from toxins, but I don't go around saying I am my liver. But I do go around saying I am my brain, I am my thinking, or at least I don't say it externally, but I say it to myself internally. But when I heard that and I understood that, that my thoughts are separate from me, that I am the observer of my thoughts, I'm aware of the thoughts that are thinking, that I'm thinking. I mean, in one moment, I can be thinking something very positively about myself, and in the next moment, I could be thinking something very negatively about myself. So if I am my thoughts, then my thoughts are pretty crazy, right? Because at one moment, they're thinking one thing, and the next time, they're thinking something else. But at the same time that all that's happening, there is this piece of me that sits behind all of that, that observes that activity, that's aware that I'm thinking a negative thought that's aware that I'm feeling good and thinking good thoughts towards myself. And that's the real me. That's the part of me that is love, that is, for my interpretation, the soul of who I am, that piece of me that is my true, authentic self. And when I can identify with that part of myself and begin to de-identify with my thoughts and the thinking pattern that my thoughts kick up, all of a sudden, for me, and I hope it does this for you too, begins to free us, begins to give us hope. Because if that voice that's speaking to me isn't actually me, then what is it? And then that leads us to the second question, where did it come from? When did that voice first show up? Now we get to get curious, right? I begin to understand that that thinking isn't me. It's just this thought pattern that's shown up in my life that you know we have origins of it, and that's what we're going to talk about now. Then Now I get to kick into curiosity mode. And for me, curiosity is one of the most powerful things in healing because it begins to do self-inquiry, self-discovery. We begin to do what I call pulling the thread. We begin to have a thought and we pull the thread on it. Where did it come from? What does it mean? When did that first show up? And then I get down to kind of a core origin of something. 
And you'll often know when you get to that core origin because it hits something. I love the work of Byron Katie, and she does this whole process of, you know, is it true? Do you know it's true? It's another great book that if you don't have it, I would encourage you to get it, Loving What Is. And then Byron Katie has this process called The Work. And so she'll, somebody will say something, and she'll ask them a question. Is that true? And they'll typically say, well, yeah, it's true that I'm you know, not a good person. It's just, do you know that's true? Do you absolutely know that's true? And almost always they'll come back with, well, no, I don't know it's true. And then she'll take them through a process of asking questions of inquiry that lead to this sense of resonance that happens inside of us. And you're, you probably know what I'm talking about when I say this, that you'll, you'll land on a truth internally that really resonates with you and you recognize it as truth for you. And so that's what this, this whole process of beginning to de-identify and at beginning to get curious and say, where did it come from? Who does it sound like? What's the energy of it? When I begin to hear it for what it is, I can once again go, oh, that's not something that I created. That's something that got handed to me. That's something that somebody else, it often will sound like the voice of a parent, may sound like the voice of a relationship, or it may just just be the, the culture or whatever, the history of it. But if you get curious enough about it, I think you'll begin to identify its source and its origin. And then you realize it was something that was given to you that we then begin to adopt. We begin to reinforce. And if that's true, then we can begin to let go of it. You see, the challenge is, is when we understand that there's that voice that is going on in our head and we understand what it begins to sound like and, and the origin of it, we can really begin to recognize how it's showing up in our life. Right For me, the voice of God sounded a lot like the voice of my dad. I wasn't worthy enough. How I wasn't doing the right things. And so that caused a lot of suffering in my relationship, in my faith walk. You know, there's an interesting passage where Jesus talks about those who have ears, let them hear. And when we think about that, most of the time that's been interpreted as you need to have these spiritual ears in order to hear spiritual things. Well, there's probably some truth to that in some sense, but uh, that in itself brings a little bit of shame to it, right? Where it's, well, I guess you don't have the right type of ears to hear what needs to be said or absorbed here. And that's a very toxic, frustrating thing that we'll have an episode on at some point. Uh, but in the meantime, I think what Jesus is talking about is that the way that we've learned to hear, okay, the, the way that our ears have been trained to hear things is this filter on what we kind of allow into our system, what we push out and what we allow in. For example, a person can give you a compliment, right? They'll get up and they'll tell you, you did a great job on that presentation. Now, your ears are hearing that. If you've got the inner critic as active as I did, your ears are hearing that as, you know what, they're just saying that. Ah, they don't really believe that. And if they really knew me and they knew all the times that I messed up during that presentation and I was actually trying to do this, but I did that, that's the ears I'm hearing it through. I'm hearing the compliment through the lens, the ears of the inner critic. And so I think there's a real healing that can take, well, I know there's a real healing that can take place in the way that we hear things. And there's a way that we can begin to filter it differently and hear it through ears of love, ears of self-worth. But that inner critic, it stands guard. It's like a gatekeeper, and it keeps out the positive, the love, and it filters through 
you know what? They don't really know you. If they did, if they knew what you did back here, uh, they knew what a loser you were, they certainly wouldn't be saying that to you. All of that, that's an inner critic that's been trained. So we're de-identifying, right? So we've said we're not our thoughts. And now we're beginning to see the origin of when did it show up? Oh, this got handed to me. It's not who I authentically am. It's something that was uh, given to me in my life. Now we want to start looking at how do we begin to disempower it? One of the ways we can disempower it, we've got to change our energy with it. There's this great thing that the Buddha says, you know, when somebody's asking, what do you do when somebody is angry at you? He says, well, if I choose to not receive the anger, whose anger is it? Well, the person responds, it still belongs to the person trying to give you the anger. So the lesson there, right, is that if I don't receive it, if I don't receive that type of energy, then that energy remains with the person that's trying to give it to me. So if the person wants to give me anger, person wants to give me hatred, and then I receive that, now I'm caught up in that energy. Now I'm angry. Now I'm frustrated. Now I'm pushing back. And now we're fighting. But if I don't receive it, and I begin to meet it with kindness or just not letting it get absorbed in my system, the entire energy of that interaction has changed. Well, I think it's the same way with the inner critic. If the inner critic is coming at me with, you're no good, you're unworthy, I can't believe you did that, and I'm trying to get rid of the inner critic, and I go back at the inner critic like, shut up, why do you always have to talk to yourself this way? What's wrong with you? Why can't you just be normal? Why can't you stop beating yourself up? Well, I'm matching the same energy of the inner critic with the voice of another inner critic. So what is that going to do? That's just going to keep me in a cycle. I'm just going to loop back and forth, and my nervous system is still worked up. I'm creating more anxiety because I'm trying to heal the inner critic with the voice of another inner critic. And guess what caused the voice of the inner critic? That energy. So how are you going to heal the inner critic with the same energy that caused it? So what do we do? I mean, there's this great saying that I'm sure you're familiar with, many people are familiar with, that what we resist persists because we're meeting it with energy of trying to fight it. We're trying to push it back instead of allowing it to be, observing it, becoming curious about it, and then beginning to meet it with kindness. How can I meet that part of me with kindness? I mean, that part of me that's beating me up, that sounds like my dad, sounds like my mom, that's wreaked havoc in my life. How in the world am I supposed to meet that part of myself with kindness? Well, I guess you could go on with the same tactic that you've had before, which is beating it up and shaming yourself for having it. You know, there's shame. We often have shame in having shame, and we shame ourselves for the inner critic, which once again is the voice of the inner critic. But how has that been working for you? How is that working? Is it decreasing that voice, or does it seem to only be increasing it? Try a new tactic. And here's a new tactic that you can try. Meet it with kindness. When it shows up, Love it because it is a part of you that needs to be healed. It is a voice that you adopted because of pain that's in your life. And it is asking you and it is inviting you to heal it when it shows up. It's not just randomly showing up. I mean, yes, it's become a habit, but it often is triggered by things that have become wounds or that have been wounds in your life. And it shows up in those moments where you start to beat yourself up because it's really associated and it begins to feel that original source of wounding. And so when it shows up, if you can look at it and go, that's a part of me 
that was hurt. That's a part of me that was damaged, and it wants me to meet it with love. It wants me to see it through the eyes of compassion, and it wants to be healed, and it wants to be released from its job of relentlessly beating me up. How can I meet it with kindness? Well, the way I meet it with kindness is I begin to reframe it, and I begin to see it as what it authentically is, a hurting part of myself. And how would I meet the hurting part of somebody else? How would I meet the hurting part of myself? I'll begin to love it. I'll begin to be kind to it. And you can sit with that inner critic. Ask it what it wants. Ask it when it first showed up. Ask it what it needs. And just sit and listen. And do that process of self-inquiry once again. And I, I got to tell you, when I did that, and I began to hear the voice of that inner critic and began to understand that it needed me to love it and to be kind with it. it. changed everything. It changed my relationship with that inner critic. And I began to love a part of me that I thought was very unlovable. In coaching with people, I, I often will challenge them, go to the part of you that you think is the most unlovable about you. And then sit with that part of you. And let's figure out how to love that part of you. So if you can meet it with kindness, you'll begin to disempower it because you've changed the entire energy and you're not caught in a loop of fighting with it. The other thing that we do in disempowering it is, we've talked a little bit about this already, is that we realize that it's a habit and it often becomes an addiction, an addiction to a certain thinking pattern. So why is that good news? Well, if it's good news, it means that there was some things, there's some certain things that have to happen in order for things to become a habit. There's certain things that have to happen in order for things to become an addiction. So all of it, once again, are things that are trying to serve us uh, in some way. Even the most crazy dysfunctional things we do at times are, are trying to serve us. And we'll talk about that in, in another time. But the reality is that this thing showing up as a habit means that I heard it, I started to practice it, I started to feel it, started to get ingrained in my system. And wow, if I did the opposite of beating myself up and I started to love myself, speak kindly to myself, practice that, wouldn't it make sense that that could become a new habit? Doesn't that feel hopeful? Doesn't that feel less disempowered? Don't I feel at that moment like, well, I could really tackle this. I could I can make a difference in this. I'm, I'm not captive to this thing. Uh, so realizing that it is a habit and it's an addiction and the patterns that we got in to form those habits and to form those addictions and the way of thinking are actually what's going to turn it around and heal it for us. Let's now talk about how do we disrupt it and deprogram it. So we're going to de-identify, we're going to disempower, now we're going to disrupt and we're going to deprogram. So I've become familiar with the voice. I can begin to recognize it now, right, when it shows up. That's that curiosity piece. So all of a sudden, I know it's there. I know it's not me. I can observe it. I can see it. Now I need to figure out how to disrupt it because I go on autopilot. How many times have you made the commitment to yourself? I'm not going to beat myself up. I'm not going to speak to myself that way anymore. And two minutes later, you're sitting in the chair thinking about all the things you did wrong, why you're unworthy of love. And it could just be a phone call that happens. It could be something you see on TV, a song that reminds you of somebody or some event in your life. And then all of a sudden, you're spiraled back down into beating the crap out of yourself. Well, how do I disrupt? How do I recognize that? And then how do I disrupt it? I'll just give you some tips that worked for me. You're going to have to find the things that worked for you. We're all different. But I know what worked for me. I mean, the, the overarching thoughts, I think, are the same for us, but the way that we go about implementing them could be different for each person. So for me, 
I became familiar with the voice. And when I'd cycle into it, I needed something that I could see, a visual that would allow me to go, oh, that's right. I'm back into that space. I'm once again into the space of letting the inner critic beat me up. So I tied a red string around my wrist. And I kept that thing on my wrist for six months. I mean, I'm not telling you that this stuff's going to change overnight. And we often give up on it because we think it's supposed to change overnight. Man, I was 48 years old, 47 years old. I mean, I'd had a lot of years of ingraining that thing. And for me to expect that it was going to change in two days was really unrealistic. So I had to reset my expectations and go, you know what? However long this journey takes, I'm going to love that part of me. I'm going to heal that part of me. I'm going to deprogram myself, and I'm going to reprogram myself. So I had, I took a red string, I tied it around my wrist, and it would just be something that as I was sitting there and getting back into that cycle, I could look down and go, oh, that's right. And a disruption would happen. I, I mean, I got to tell you, I had things everywhere. I had a sticker on my mirror, I had stuff in my car, I had stuff on my refrigerator, I had it on my phone. Here's a great tip for you. Put a screensaver on your phone with a mantra. And we'll get into the mantra in just a second. But I had to put that on my screensaver. I had to put it on my phone. So every time I picked up my phone, it would say what I wanted to believe about myself. So whatever those reminders are, we've got to disrupt. So those those are the disruptors. That all of a sudden we come back to ourselves, right? We, We recognize, I don't want to do that. And then we lose ourselves. We get sucked back down in it. And then we have to come back to ourselves. Coming back to ourselves is that disruption. So red strings, papers, whatever it is that you need, something on your phone that's just going to get you back in that, out of that moment. So as soon as you disrupt it, I mean, the moment that you disrupt it, now we want to start to deprogram it because we've created space. And all you need is space. That's what that disruption is, just a little bit of space between the painful thoughts and the painful moment and awareness, back into awareness. Oh my gosh, I'm doing that. And it's in that little window that we want to immediately begin to deprogram. Now, if you don't do it immediately, that's okay. You know, you're going to have more chances to do this, I'm sure. And be kind to yourself. Be kind to the part of you that's trying to heal parts of you. And don't shame yourself. We'll often shame ourselves out of the healing process. We'll try it two or three times and we'll say, ah, it didn't work for me. So uh, it's not for me. Other people can change, but I can't. That's the inner critic. Got to recognize it. So whatever it is that's your disruptor. And as soon as it's disrupted, here's the other thing I did. I had a mantra ready. And what's a mantra uh, for you, for those of you who are new to that? Well, we've heard a lot about positive affirmations. Uh, We've heard, you know, just the word mantra, and we often associate mantra and positive affirmation as kind of the same thing. Uh, But the reason I use the word mantra, and I think there's a little bit of difference here, or actually a lot of difference here, is that for me, a, a mantra is not just the word or the thought. It's not just the phrase, but it's the emotion that I attach to it. I want you to figure out how can you attach emotion to what you're trying to say. Because the inner critic is really good at kicking up a thought and then making us feel an emotion, right? So you have that thought about that failure, and then all of a sudden you start to feel it, right? And so you're cycled in. And that's why I say there's that addiction, because it becomes a loop that happens. Thought gets, you know, a thought bubbles up, feelings begin to come up, which produces more thoughts, and our bodies start to produce chemicals, it starts to produce this reaction, and we get used to it. And then we all of a sudden, you know, that becomes home for us. And that's going to be a lot of what we talk about with an addiction to shame in another episode coming up. So when that, when that whole process begins to happen, you've disrupted it. 
you have that mantra. So in selecting a mantra, what I did was I just found something that was the exact opposite of what I was saying to myself. So if I was sitting there telling myself I was a loser and unworthy of love, then I would select the mantra, I am worthy of love. If I felt like I wasn't enough, then I would select the mantra, I am enough. And I'd have that on my mirror. I'd have it on my screensaver, on my phone, as I referred to earlier. And so that would be the thing that I would go to immediately, as soon as I would disrupt it. And I'd start saying it. I'd be repeating it out of my mouth. I'd be thinking it in my mind. I'd have that mantra going first thing in the morning when I woke up and last thing before I fell asleep at night. That mantra going on in my head, coming out of my mouth and attaching emotion to it. What would it feel like? to feel like you were enough, finally? What would it feel like to feel that you were worthy of love? And attach to that, mo- that emotion and say it and think it and feel it. And so what that's doing is it's deprogramming. It's going into those neural pathways and it's beginning to form a new way. And, and, and that's why it's so darn difficult sometimes and why it feels so foreign to us is because we're literally carving new ground. We're carving ground in our brain that it just doesn't have that pathway yet. So you're grooving a pathway in your brain and you're teaching your body how to produce new chemicals towards yourself, new loving feelings towards yourself, and you're just not used to it, so it feels unfamiliar. And so you go, ah, this is you know nonsense. I'm not gonna do this anymore, mantra stuff, whatever. Here's what I had to do. I had to stick with this stuff for six months to a year, sometimes just on one thing that I wanted to change my thinking about. Now, you can say like, man, I don't want to have to do six months. I don't have to do a year. Well, you know, a year is going to pass. And at the end of the year, you're either going to still be beating yourself up or you're going to be thinking kind and loving thoughts towards yourself. And I don't mean that as a shameful, um, a shameful thought, but it's really the reality. We can keep down the same path and a year from now be thinking the same thing about ourselves. You're, you're worthy of more than that. You're worthy of healing your life and you can heal your life. So we've disrupted it. We've found our mantra. We're going to begin to say that. We're going to begin to repeat that. We're going to feel it. And then all of a sudden, something's going to happen. This is what happened for me, and it happens with many of the people that I work with. There's going to become this shift that happens inside of you. You're going to go from, I'm just saying it. I know I'm supposed to say it, but I'm going to keep saying it because I believe this is the right thing to do to, okay, feels a little bit more comfortable. I'm doing it. Yeah. I'm even remembering to do it and it feels good, you know, and then there'll become a moment and I'm not sure how to put it in words other than you'll, you'll know it when you experience. And and if you don't experience, it's nothing dramatic. Uh, And I'm not saying that if you don't experience something like this, it's not working for you, but often what happens is you feel this little shift inside where you go, oh, I kind of felt something a little different when I said it that time. It feels, man, I actually kind of believed it that time when I said it. And that's interesting. I remember the first time that happened to me. I was looking in the mirror. I was saying, I am enough. I am enough. And I was looking at myself straight in the eyes and I was just going at it. I am enough. I am enough. And I remember it's like, what? Something just, something shifted. And it was so unique for me, and it, it, it piqued such a level of curiosity to me because it was almost like a new chemical got fired off in my body. Something happened, and it's like, you know what? This is working, and it gave me hope to keep going on. So this week, begin to do the process of de-identifying, disempowering that thing, and then disrupt it 
and begin to deprogram it. Get yourself a mantra, find out which ones you need, whatever that source is that you address. But this week, go through that process. Begin to heal that part of yourself and begin to heal that inner critic. Listen, you can do this. You can change the way that you speak to yourself. You can love yourself into change. You don't have to beat yourself into change. There is hope. You can change. You can heal your own life. And remember, in all of this work, the most important thing, please go gently with yourself along this path. You're worthy of the work that you're doing. You can transform your relationship with yourself. And remember, as always, if you need additional support, you can go to jerryhenderson.org. You can learn more about the coaching services that I offer to people and other resources that are there. And don't forget those two books that I mentioned before, Michael Singer's book on the untethered soul and Byron Katie's book on loving what is. Fantastic reads. It'll begin to reprogram you, begin to help change you. Thank you once again for taking the time to listen. And remember, you are worthy of your own love. I hope today's episode was valuable to you, that it served you, and that you found some insights that are helpful for you on your journey. If you did, I just want to ask you to like it and to share it with somebody else because you never know the impact it can make in somebody else's life. And finally, don't forget to follow. That'll let you know when new episodes are coming out. And then you can also find me at jerryhenderson.com. That's my website. There's more resources there that can help you as well. And you can also find me on Instagram at Jerry A. Henderson. Feel free to reach out to me there and send me a message. I just want to say I'm really grateful you're here. And don't forget, you are worthy of your own love. The Permission to Love podcast and the content posted by Jerry Henderson is presented solely for general information entertainment, and educational purposes. It is not intended as a substitute for the advice of a physician, psychotherapist, or other qualified professionals.